Did you know that Christianity is different from every other religion in the world? Are you aware of the factors that make it truly unique? How many times have you heard someone say, it doesn't matter what you believe about God as long as you believe in God? Did you know that statement is totally false? For some great insights about the uniqueness of Christianity, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. For the past few weeks we have been in the process of showing you excerpts from sermons presented at our recent Bible conference which was dedicated to the theme of spiritual apostasy in the end times. One of those presentations was entitled, Are There Many Roads to God? It was made by Dr. Ron Carlson who is considered to be one of Christendom's foremost experts on cults and world religions. Let's listen to Dr. Carlson as he talks about the uniqueness of Christianity. Oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. All religions are basically the same. Have you ever heard somebody say that? That's one of the most common statements I hear today as I speak on universities. Students who say, it doesn't matter what you believe. All religions are basically the same. Friends, next time you hear somebody tell you that, you will know immediately you've met somebody who is totally naive. Not only naive, but ignorant of anthropology, of history, of philosophy, of religion. You see, friends, there is something very unique about Jesus Christ. There is something very unique about Christianity, different from any religion in the world. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says that universally men and women are without excuse. He says universally People know there is a God. People have no excuse. In Romans 1, verse 20, he says, We know there is a God, first of all, by what we see in creation. That this world is not a product of evolutionary chance, but was made by a master designer, a creator. Just before the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, I was invited at the end of the 1980s and 87 to, by Campus Crusade for Christ to speak in the major universities of communist Poland in Warsaw and Krakow and Poznań on the scientific evidence regarding creation. It was always an interesting topic as I spoke through the former Soviet Union when you realize that evolution was the mantra of the Communist Party, that man was simply an animal that the state could manipulate. And I'll never forget it at the University of Poznań there on the East German border. After one of my lectures, a graduate student in engineering and physics came up to me. He said, Dr. Carlson, he says, I don't care what you say. He said, I'm still going to believe in evolution. And I rolled up my shirt sleeve that evening and I showed him my wristwatch. I said, you see this watch here? Went down to a junkyard. Found some old rusty bent up twisted pieces of metal and iron. And I, I threw them into a shoebox and I started shaking it. Shook it for two weeks, two months, six months, eight months. Kept shaking it. All of a sudden... Lamb, all the pieces flew together. Started ticking off 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, telling the day and date, 
all by chance amazing. Well, this graduate student in engineering laughed at me. He said, that's impossible. I said, you mean to tell me that this watch by chance is impossible? And yet you will tell me that this eye would seize in 3D in color? This brain that is greater than any computer on earth? A three-pound brain that has 120 billion cells, 130 trillion electronic chemical connections is all product of chance? I submit to you, friends, that it takes far more faith to believe in evolution than it does believe in a divine designer, creator. It's no wonder the Bible says only a fool would say in his heart, there is no God. But Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to say, Secondly, we know there is a God, not only by what we see in creation, but he says we know there is a God because God placed in the heart of every person a desire to know him. You know, it's very interesting, folks, that no matter where you go in this world, no matter how sophisticated or primitive the society, people have a desire to know God. Now, where do we get that desire? If we are simply products of impersonal chance? But you see, God, who is personal, created us as personal beings to live in a personal relationship with him. But Paul goes on the New Testament to say, thirdly, we know there is a God because God has broken into human history. God split history into B.C. and A.D., and he personally revealed himself to us. I just got home this last month from Cuba, and I've been in Cuba on three different occasions, and we've had the privilege of training now over 3,000 Cuban pastors and church leaders all over the island. And we need to be praying for our Cuban brothers and sisters. Uh, Fidel has simply destroyed the country economically, and it's the 50th anniversary of the revolution in 59, and they say when Fidel came to power, he, he offered change. He was going to bring change to the island. And the first thing he did was he nationalized the banks, and then he nationalized the corporations. <laughs> now everybody gets paid by the government. And everybody gets paid. It doesn't matter whether you're an electrician, a carpenter, a pastor, a teacher. Everybody gets $12 a month. That's what they live on in Cuba, $12 a month. And they give you a ration card. Each person's allowed five pounds of beans and five pounds of rice a month. That's what they're living on. Most Cubans are down to rice and beans once a day. Socialism has destroyed the country. America better wake up. But the one thing holding the country together is the church of Jesus Christ is growing like wildfire. And I was speaking in churches down there uh, one Sunday on over 3,000 people jammed into a church in Gamakwe, Cuba. Another church we were in by almost over 2,000 people jammed in Sunday morning. Hunger for the word of God over Cuba. It's exciting how the church is growing. My book, Fast Facts on False Teachings, which is out on the table in the foyer, it's the first Christian book that's been allowed to be printed in Cuba since the revolution in 1959. We've now printed in Spanish over 8,000 copies printed in Cuba. It's a real miracle how it happened. And uh, God's still involved in doing miracles, folks. First time I uh, went into Cuba, 
they had invited me to speak to 250 key pastors from 14 different denominations. And uh, they wanted to, me to come and speak on the cults, and they were having real problems with different cultic groups and false religions and my book, Fast Facts and False Teachings. I thought, Lord, it's in Spanish. Is there any way I could bring it into Cuba? And they had told me that the Cuban government does not allow anybody to bring any more than three books of anything into the country. Well, I knew that my God was bigger than Fidel, and I went to Walmart, and I got two soft-sided suitcases. I was able to put 125 uh, copies of my book in each suitcase uh, in Spanish, and 250 books for the 250 pastors. I was going to speak to the key leaders from all over Cuba and uh, checked it for Havana. Got to Havana, the carousel went around, old Russian carousel, and my suitcase with my clothes came off. Everybody else's suitcases came off. They were going through customs, and I could see the Cuban soldiers were opening everybody's suitcases, going through everything, looking for any, anything they weren't allowed to bring in. And I'm thinking, Lord, I don't know how you're going to get 250 books through the Cuban soldiers. Finally, the carousel stops, and my two suitcases with the 250 books never came off. And everybody else had gone through customs. I'm standing there alone in the baggage area, and so I go to the end of the carousel, and I pull back the flap and look into the storage area, and here's a big x-ray machine. They'd been x-raying everybody's bags coming into Cuba. And sitting on top of the x-ray machine were my two suitcases with my 250 books. And as I'm thinking to myself, now what would Dr. Reagan do? You know, I thought he'd probably go get the books. And I'm looking under there, and I'm looking back there, and it was one of those God moments. You know, we have a lot of God moments. And it happened to be 12 noon, and, and the Cuban soldiers who had unloaded the plane, uh, they had left for lunch, and there was nobody back there. And I'm looking around, there's nobody there. And I thought, well, they just probably forgot to put him back on the carousel. I got down on my hands and knees, I crawled through the opening, ran back, grabbed my two suitcases off the x-ray machine, threw them under the opening, crawled back under the hole, pulled up the handles, and here I got three big suitcases now, and there was a partition. They had not seen me do this, and the soldiers on customs were on the other side of the partition. I come walking up, and when I come walking up, the Cuban soldiers are visibly angry at me. I mean, visibly mad. And I'm praying the whole time, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. And just praying, somehow, God, you're going to have to help me. And I walk up, and they are physically angry. And what they were angry about is I had delayed them from going to lunch. (laughs) And I walk up, and they said, hurry, just go, get through. And I just walked right through. They never looked at my suitcases. We got to the seminar. I spoke for a week, a wonderful time with these pastors. And at the end of the seminar, I gave them each a copy of my book in Spanish. And they said, how in the world did you get this into Cuba? And uh, I got to tell you real quickly what happened. It got started being passed around Cuba. And they said, we'd like to print this. And one of the ways Fidel has maintained control is he took away everybody's printing presses in Cuba. Nobody's allowed to print anything except the communist government. But there's one church uh, that's been allowed to have a little printing press in their basement for Sunday school material, and the communists are aware of it. And and so the pastors, real brave Baptist pastors, they they said, we want to print this. And I got the plates down to them, and and, uh, they started buying up all the paper in Cuba. They wanted to buy up 200,000 sheets of paper, and I had sent them down money to buy up 
the paper, and they were buying up all the, there's not a lot of paper in Cuba. Well, it wasn't long before the communists discovered somebody in Cuba was buying up all the paper. And they traced it, these three pastors, and they called them to Havana to the communist headquarters. And the pastors assumed they were going to be thrown in jail. They had spent a lot of time in jail, and they were called before the Minister of Religious Affairs, Fidel's right-hand person, for the last 50 years. And they decided to take an aggressive stand. They handed him a copy of my book in Spanish, and they said, this is what we want to print. The head of religious affairs for the communist government starts thumbing through my book. I got chapters on cults, world religions, evolution, atheism. And they're looking through, and all of a sudden he stops. And the head of religious affairs, Fidel's right-hand man, he starts reading the book. They don't know what he's reading. The three of them are sitting in front of him. And for 45 minutes, he reads my book. Come to find out, it was another God moment. That afternoon, that very afternoon, the president of the Mormon church in Salt Lake City was flying in on a private jet with his two top officials from Salt Lake City. They've been trying to get Mormon missionaries into Cuba because Fidel hasn't allowed any new religions in that weren't there in 59. They were flying in that afternoon to meet with the Minister of Religious Affairs. He didn't know anything about Mormonism. He gets this book in the morning, he's thumbing through it, finds a chapter on Mormonism, sits there for 45 minutes and reads the whole chapter. <laughs> that afternoon, folks, the president of the Mormon church, Gordon B. Hinckley, flies in to Havana, meets with the religious Minister of Religious Affairs. Re- Minister of Religious Affairs tells the president of the Mormon church, you guys are a cult, we're not letting you into our country, and kicked him out. God's still in the business of parting the Red Sea, folks, and the walls of Jericho are still coming down in ways that we can never plan or anticipate. But Paul goes on in the New Testament. He says, thirdly, we know there is a God because God broke into human history. God split history into B.C. and A.D., and he personally revealed himself to us. When I was with these Cuban pastors, I shared with them one of my favorite stories I've shared around the world. It's one of those great stories that no matter what culture you're in, people identify with it. And I told them about the father and son who were walking down a dirt path one day, and they, they came upon an anthill that somebody had stepped on and smashed those ants. I don't know, do you have ants in Texas? <laughs> and uh, the little boy, who was four years old, he looked up to his daddy and said, Daddy, wouldn't it be good if we could go down and, and tell those ants we love them? You know, tell those ants we care about them and help them with their sick and their wounded? And the father, he put his arm around his little boy. And he said, son, son, the only way that we could tell those ants that we love them, that we care about them, is to become an ant. To live like an ant and talk like an ant and and then by our lives, they would know what we are like. You see, 2,000 years ago, God looked down on a world that he created, a world that he loved. And God says, I want to tell you how much I love you. How is God going to do that? And God said, I will become a man. And I will live like a man and talk like a man. And by my life, you will know what I am like. But before he did this, he began to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah through the Jewish nation. By giving us in the Old Testament over 300 prophecies, 67 major prophecies, 270 minor prophecies and ramifications, 
in the Old Testament concerning who the Messiah was going to be so there would be no mistake. I was recently on a flight from Los Angeles to Auckland, New Zealand, and had been invited to speak in all the major universities of Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch uh, by the National Apologetic Society of New Zealand. And it's always interesting when you get on a plane for 11 hours to see who you're going to be sitting next to. And uh, we were on a big 747, and I was, uh, my son and I, uh, my son who's a pastor in the Twin Cities, uh, uh, I was sitting on the aisle, and he was sitting across from me on the other aisle. And next to me in the center in the window seat, I sat down for an 11-hour flight, and sitting next to me was a 75-year-old Jewish couple from Long Island, New York. 75-year-old Jewish couple from Long Island, New York, both PhDs in sociology. I'll never forget the man had a tattoo in his arm where, as a child, he had been in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. And we began to talk, and I was asking why they were going to New Zealand, and, and just a dear couple. We had a wonderful conversation, and, and as we were talking, uh, uh, when they discovered that I had spent a year studying at Jerusalem University College in Israel, boy, that opened up all kinds of uh, conversation about the Jewish nation and Israel, and, and we just had a wonderful time. Well, we were about an hour into the flight. And I thought, you know, I might as well just go to the heart of the issue, you know? <laughs> and they were a dear couple. We were having a wonderful conversation. And I, I said to them, I said, when they found out, you know, I told them what I did and, and who I was. And I said, can I ask you a question? I've often wondered. They said, sure. I said, tell me, I said, why is it so difficult for Jews to accept Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah? You know, figure it might as well just go to the heart of the issue. You know, why is it so difficult for Jews to accept Jesus Christ as Jewish Messiah? And Marty Getz was talking about his own family. And uh, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish prophets gave us over 300 prophecies concerning who the Messiah was going to be so there'd be no mistake. They said, what do you mean? Well, I got out the Bible. And we started going through the Bible there. We had an 11-hour flight. (laughs) We went to the Jewish scriptures. We went back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 tells us that this one who is coming is going to be of the seed of a woman. Now, that was unique for everyone else was of the seed of a man, but this one would not have a human father. We then read in Genesis that Noah had three sons. What were their names? Ham, Shem, Japheth. Watch what God does. God eliminates two-thirds of the nations of the world, and he tells us that through the line of Shem, he would bring his anointed. We then read in Genesis 11 and Genesis 17 that one from the line of Shem, out of the earth of the Chaldees, one whose name is Abraham, says out of Abraham will come forth a Messiah, and it says through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We then read in Genesis that Abraham had two sons. What were their names? Isaac And Ishmael, watch what God does. God eliminates 50% of the descendants of Abraham, and he tells us that through the line of Isaac, he would bring his anointed. We then read in Genesis that Isaac had two sons. What were their names? Jacob and Esau. Watch what God does. God eliminates 50% of the descendants of Isaac, and he tells us that through through the line of Jacob, he would bring his anointed. In Genesis 49, we then read that Jacob had 12 sons, What were their names? (laughs) The the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Now watch what God does. God eliminates 11 twelfths of the descendants of Jacob, and he tells us that through the line of, through the line of Judah, he would bring his Messiah. We then read in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, One from the tribe of Judah, from the root and offspring of Jesse, out of Jesse will come forth the Messiah. We then turn to 1 Samuel 17, and it tells us that Jesse had eight sons. Watch what God does. God eliminates seven-eighths of the descendants of Jesse, and he tells us that through the line of, through the line of David, he would bring his anointed. We then turn over to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, This one who is coming, who's going forth, or from all eternity, he's going to be born in that little town of Bethlehem, less than 1,000 population at the time. We then turn over to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14 says that a, a virgin shall conceive. Now, folks, that eliminates a lot of people. <laughs> that a virgin will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, God with us. We then turn over to Isaiah 9, 6. Very interesting passage we read at Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6 says a child will be born, but that child is going to be a son who is given. And his name will be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We then turn over to Isaiah 52 and 53. It says that he's going to be rejected by his own people, the Jews, but accepted by his enemies, the Gentiles. You know, folks, that eliminates a lot of Jewish leaders. We then read in Zechariah that he's going to be betrayed by a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, not 29, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver, which is interesting when gold was the monetary standard of the day. David, writing 1000 B.C. in Psalm 22, tells us he's going to be crucified which is interesting, folks, because crucifixion was never practiced until 200 B.C. It was never practiced in a Jewish providence until 63 B.C. And God begins to pinpoint out through human history precisely who the Messiah was going to be. This Jewish couple, they kept saying to me, you mean that's in our Bible? That's in our Bible? Here they were, 75-year-old PhDs, Jews from Long Island, had never in their life had anybody explain to them Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. They kept saying, that's in our Bible? Over 300 prophecies. Now I've just given you 13. Do you know mathematicians have figured out that the probability of having just eight of those prophecies fulfilled in one person is the same probability as if you were to take the entire state of Texas, cover, cover the entire state three feet deep with silver dollars. The entire state, three feet deep with silver dollars. On one of those silver dollars, place an X, throw it down in the middle of Texas, bulldoze it under if you like, then take a Texan, put a blindfold on him, spin him around in circles, send him out in the state, covered three feet deep with silver dollars. Do you know the probability that he would pick the one with the Exxon on the first pick is the same probability that only eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled in one person? Folks, you want to know something? All 300-plus were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Please understand, folks, you have no excuse historically for rejecting Jesus Christ. People often ask me, you know, what is so unique about Jesus Christ? He possessed no certificates or degrees. 
He never traveled farther than 150 miles from where he was born. He, he lived and moved among very common people. He was not an author. He wrote no books. He composed no poems. He compiled no documents. He edited no newspapers. He contributed no periodicals. The only sentence he ever wrote was a single line in the sand which disappeared the same day. No lever was preserved. He never used a fountain pen or a typewriter or a Microsoft Word. But folks, do you know that more books have been written about him and his words than any other man? He has affected the lives of more people than all the authors of all the ages put together. The story of his life has now been translated in over 2,500 languages and is read yearly by billions of people. He was not an orator. And yet no person ever spoke like this man. His discourses have become the theme of millions of addresses. His words are simple and clear. Very few adjectives are used, and yet his senses abound with beauty, meaning, and grace. In fact, today his sayings are hammered into polished marble. They are chiseled into imperishable granite. They are wrought into enduring bronze tablets. They're fashioned in stained glass windows of numberless churches. They're etched in rich mosaics upon temple walls, and they are set today in arched domes of colossal cathedrals. His words are literary gems. In fact, he stands today as an equal seer of all of literature. Shakespeare, Milton, Emerson, folks, they all bow their heads in his presence, recognizing a superior. He was not a poet. And yet he has inspired thousands of poets out of their most sublime expressions. He was not an artist or a sculptor or a painter. And yet he was the inspiration for Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Hoffman, and the list goes on and on. He was not a musician. And yet he was the inspiration for Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Bach, Handel, Marty Getz, Jack Hollingsworth. <laughs> Pretty good company. He was not a doctor. And yet he healed the sick. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He cleansed the leopard. And folks, he raised the dead. He was not a statesman. You know, he never held nor aspired to official position. He did not delve into politics, but he did found a kingdom. He was not a general, and yet he became the conqueror of the world. And in war or in peace, in good times or bad, it remains true to this day, folks, that no single word grips the hearts of men like the name of Jesus. I sincerely hope that presentation was a blessing to you. And I hope you will be back with us again next week when we will be sharing another of the conference sermons with you, one by Mike Gendron, an expert on Christian doctrine. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. You can get your copy of Dr. Ron Carlson's book, Fast Facts on False Teachings, for a gift of $15 or more plus shipping. This is a book that will provide you with insights regarding the major cults and world religions of our day. It will also equip you to better defend Christianity as the only way to God. 
Other topics covered include the New Age movement, evolution, yoga, reincarnation, occultism, and transcendental meditation. To get your copy of this valuable book, just call the number you see on the screen Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 Central Time or order online at lamblion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 